their names will live in infamy because of their cruelty, because of their anti-God philosophies that shaped the way that they ruled millions of people and engaged our world. Names like Lenin and Stalin and Hitler and Mao Zedong. Those names are associated with great evil. They're associated with horrific things that happened in the 20th century. But I want you to understand that even though there seemed to be a proliferation of ungodly, cruel tyrants in the 20th century, there have always been people in places of power that have opposed God. And in our story this morning, Acts chapter 12, as we continue our journey through this book, we're going to see a king named Herod who opposed God and the things of God and the people of God. And there's much for us to see and to learn from this story. So turn there with me to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. I'd like to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Truth with no mixture of error. Acts chapter 12, Verse 1, the Bible says, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We are grateful, Lord, for your goodness and grace and mercy and love. We are grateful, Lord, for Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins and who defeated death when he was raised from the dead. We're grateful, Lord, for the the hope, the fulfillment, the peace, the joy that Jesus grants those who trust in Him. And Lord, I pray that as we look into Your Word and as we continue this time of corporate worship, that the name of Jesus would be exalted. And that we would leave today, Lord, more determined, more resolved to go out into the world and to let people see the light of Jesus in our lives. And we'll thank you and praise you for that grace. Lord, we lift up this prayer to you and offer this prayer to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As a Gentile physician named Luke wrote this book of Acts, he intends for us to see how the gospel spread from Jerusalem to the outer Uh, territory of Judea into Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we saw last week how the gospel moved in a dramatic way into the Gentile world as God sent awakening to a Syrian city named Antioch. But here in Acts chapter 12, the scene shifts from Antioch in Syria back to Jerusalem, which is where this movement, this gospel movement started on the day of Pentecost. And we're introduced here in Acts chapter 12 to a king, it says in verse 1, named 
Herod. Now, Herod here is Herod Agrippa I. And Herod Agrippa I was an evil man. He was the grandson of Herod the Great. You might remember Herod the Great as the king during the time of Jesus' birth. Remember, after Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary, Herod heard of the birth of a potential Messiah, and so he wanted to kill any rivals to his throne. So he had all the people in the area of Bethlehem, all the the kids, two years old and under, killed so that he could kill this potential Messiah. Of course, Jesus escaped. He and his, his family escaped to Egypt Uh, So they did not experience the wrath of Herod. But this was Herod Agrippa's grandpa, Herod the Great, an evil, evil man. Herod Agrippa's uh, uh, uncle was Herod Antipas. Now you might remember Herod Antipas as the one who beheaded John the Baptist. Remember that story? And so this was not a nice family. The Herods were not nice folks. Matter of fact, they were opposed to the things of God. And we see the same thing happening here in Acts chapter 12 as Herod begins to intensify persecution against the leaders of the church in the city of Jerusalem. So what I want to do is I want to unpack this story under four headings and just kind of walk you through what happens in Acts chapter 12. And then after we unpack the story, I want to just spend a few moments making some application to all of us in this room so we can think about how this story should apply to our lives. And so let's just look at the four headings of this story and watch it unfold in chapter 12. First of all, I want you to notice the startling persecution. The startling persecution. What we read here at the beginning of Acts chapter 12 is persecution led by Herod Agrippa. Now, I want you to think for a moment about the motive for persecution. Why in the world is Herod... uh, persecuting the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. Well, look what it says there in verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. How did Herod become a king with such great power? Well, it might interest you to know that Herod was sent by his family to grow up in Rome. And Herod became good friends with some other little boys... And those little boys would grow up to become Roman emperors. And when those little boys that he was childhood friends with in Rome grew up, they would give their buddy increased holdings. And so the empire of Herod grew, the power of Herod grew, because of his political connection with some boyhood friends who would become Roman emperors. In other words, he gained his strength from currying favor with Rome. Now, here's the question. What did the Jewish people whom Herod reigned over, what did they think of Herod? Well, they despised Herod, and they despised his family because the Herodian dynasty came from the Edomite people, and the Jews did not like Edomites ruling over their nation. And so, Herod was always looking for ways to gain more popularity with the Jewish people, and he finds it here in Acts chapter 12. Notice what it says In verse 2, he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. In other words, Herod kills a Christian leader, and the Jewish religious leaders cheer him. Good job, Herod. Herod says, I like that. I like that increased popularity, so let me take Peter. I'll arrest him and, and plan to kill him too. 
And so Herod was leading in persecution against the church because he wanted to curry favor with the Jewish people. In other words, Herod was a very political man. And that was the motive for his persecution. You might say it like this. Herod's fear of man was greater than his fear of God. Why did he kill James? Why did he arrest Peter? Because his fear of man was greater than his fear of God. And I want you to know that one of the reasons that our nation is in a moral freefall is because we lack leaders with moral and political courage. And their fear of man is greater than their fear of God. That's why we see our our moral foundations disintegrating and our nation going in the, the exact opposite direction from the way it should be going because of lack of moral political courage. And when people, listen to me, when people fear man more than God, they will always be opposed to the people of God. Because they don't fear him. And so one of the reasons we see intensifying intimidation against Christians in our nation is because our nation, by and large, does not fear God. It fears man. So this is the motive behind Herod's persecution of the church. But I want you to notice also the modes of persecution. The first mode we see is death. It says there in verse 2, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now you remember that James and John were sons of Zebedee. They were Uh, They were two of the original 12 disciples. And it seemed that Jesus would spend a little bit extra time with Peter and James and John. There were times in his public ministry where he would take Peter, James, and John only with him to see some things and to teach them some things. And so Jesus had a very close relationship with Peter and James and John. And James, one of the sons of Zebedee, a leader in the early church, is is killed by the sword, by the command of Herod, probably beheaded. So death is the first mode of persecution we see. The second is imprisonment. It says there in verse 3, when he stalled that it had pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. This means that after the Passover was over, he would bring Peter out and have him killed too. Because under Jewish law, you couldn't execute the death penalty during the Passover celebration. So he's going to arrest him, keep him in jail during the Passover. After the Passover, bring Peter out so he could be executed as well. Notice, it, it mentions here the guards that are with Peter. It says he delivered him over to four squads of soldiers. A squad was probably four soldiers, and, and the four squads were one for each watch of the night. Probably what happened is these squads would come in during their watch, and one would chain himself to Peter's right arm, the other would chain himself to Peter's left arm, and two guards would stand guard at the door. And that's what Peter was experiencing. He was experiencing imprisonment. Now here's what I want you to understand. These modes of persecution are still happening in our world today. You need to understand that right now in our world, people are being killed because they simply believe in Jesus. And there are people 
who are thrown in prison simply because they represent Christ. And so death and imprisonment is still happening as as means of persecution against God's people today. So we notice here the startling persecution. But secondly, I want you to see the steadfast response. How does the church respond to to the persecution that Herod is leading? Well, notice what it says in verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer, I like that, earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. The church responded to unrelenting evil with powerful prayer. I like that phrase, earnest prayer. The the word earnest is the Greek word ektenos. It's an adverb. It means pertaining to an unceasing activity, normally involving a degree of intensity and or perseverance. So this isn't some nice little prayer meeting. These folks are gathered together, and with great intensity, they are crying out to God on behalf of Peter. God, Peter is in prison. It seems as if Herod wants to kill him too. Would you rescue him from this doom? Would you rescue him from this plight? God, we we call out to you on behalf of Peter. Earnest prayer. And that's how they respond to the persecution. They respond by praying. Which leads to the third part of this story, which I call the supernatural intervention. How does God respond to their prayers? Well, look what it says in verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, bring him out to kill him, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So he is being watched carefully. And behold... An angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod, from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So Peter saw this escape as divine deliverance. He saw God's hand of power in it. When he realized this, verse 12, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. I always thought that was funny. Peter's standing there knocking, and she hears him and just runs off. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. Now keep in mind, the folks were praying for this. But when God answers, they can't believe it, right? We're the same way. We ask God to meet needs in our life. We ask God to, to move in our lives. And he does it. And we say, was that really God moving as a result of my prayers? And notice there in verse 16, Peter continued knocking. 
And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. He said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. They departed. Now that James, not the James who was beheaded. This is James, the, 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 the earthly brother, the half-brother of Jesus. Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. So what happens here? God's people pray earnestly, and God moves in response to their prayers, and we see that his hand is mighty, and he delivers Peter. And we learn from this, that because God is mighty, his hand is mighty, he can always deliver his people from danger. And so Peter's in prison, about to be executed, but God intervenes, Peter is set free. Which leads me to this question. What about James? He didn't experience deliverance, did he? He was beheaded. So at the beginning of the chapter, James dies. Peter is delivered. How do you explain that? One person martyred, one person set free. How are we to process that reality? Well, in God's mysterious plan, he allows some to be delivered and some to be martyred. And we see this throughout the scriptures. Look over in Hebrews chapter 11. Hold your place there, but turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 is the famous passage called the Hall of Faith. We see here people of great faith being described. And notice what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. The writer of Hebrews says, What more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. So the writer of Hebrews says there, there are people who are in mighty in faith who were delivered from death. They were delivered from the sword by the hand of God. People of strong faith. So we might say, well, people of strong faith are always delivered from hardship, right? We'll keep reading. Look what it says in verse 36. Others, these are other folks who were strong in faith as well. But look at their plight. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. Do you see the dilemma there? Some people strong in faith were delivered by God. Others strong in faith were killed. So how do you explain that? Both groups had strong faith with vastly different outcomes. Here's the answer. In God's mysterious plan, he allows some to be delivered and some to be martyred. We see that in Acts chapter 12. You see, when we face difficult things and we pray for deliverance, the outcome may not be the desired outcome, but it is always the right outcome. And how do we know it's the right outcome? It's the right outcome because it's the one God has chosen. And God chooses the outcomes for his glorious purposes. Or let me say it like this. God always grants. Everyone say always. God always grants temporal deliverance or ultimate deliverance. But he always delivers his people. You see, Peter is delivered temporally. In his his time on this earth, he was delivered from jail. And he was set free. James was delivered ultimately, 
Because after he died, guess what? His next step was heaven. How do you lose, right? Even though he was martyred, God allowed him to be killed, he was delivered because he got to go to heaven. That's why Paul said when he was in jail writing to Philippi, he said, listen, for to me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Every day God gives me opportunity to live, I get to serve him and share the gospel. But if I die, if I am killed for preaching the gospel, guess what? It gets better for me because I get to go to heaven what Paul said. How do you lose, right? And so notice, notice that God's faithful. He always delivers. Sometimes it's temporal deliverance here on this earth. Sometimes he allows death. And that's called ultimate deliverance because they get to go to heaven. And so we see here the supernatural intervention of God, which leads me to the fourth part of the story. The story closes with a striking contrast. Look back with me in Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. Notice what it says in verse 18. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. Their job was to keep him in jail. He's not in jail anymore. Big problem, right? And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now look in verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Now the Jewish historian Josephus records Something about the robe that Herod was wearing. He said it was reflective, almost like he had mirrors all over his robe. So when he was standing before the people, the sunlight was reflecting off his robe. It was as if Herod was shining before the people. So he's in this this majestic robe, giving this speech, and people say, He's not a man, he's a god! Did Herod stop their worship? No. Look what it says. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Didn't end very well for Herod, did it? That's awful. That's that's how he died. Struck down, eaten by worms. But look at the next verse. But, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Do you see the contrast there? First we see that the tyrant is judged and destroyed. But, but by way of contrast, the gospel keeps on marching on. Isn't that awesome? So the tyrant who wanted to stop Christianity is killed. But the gospel continues on. There's a striking contrast at the end of this story. And isn't it interesting that people like Stalin and Lenin and Hitler... Mao Zedong, evil, godless tyrants are dead and gone, but the gospel's still marching on. There's a contrast in this story. So here's what I want to do. I want to just spend just a few quick moments relating this story in Acts 12 to to you and to me. And here's what I want to do. I want to talk to you about what you do when you find yourself in intimidating circumstances because I want you to know that as we live in our nation which is becoming increasingly godless 
those that name the name of Christ are going to experience greater and more intense intimidation. It's coming. It's happening now. It's going to happen in a greater way. Now, if I preach this message, you know, 25 years ago, the congregation would have said, oh, that's for somebody else. We don't have to worry about persecution. We live in America, land of the free, home of the brave. But now this message has more urgency, doesn't it? Because we see what's happening in our culture. We see that there are folks who are in power, who fear man more than God, and, and they are going to intimidate or attempt to intimidate Christians into silence. So what do you do when you find yourself in an, in a, an intimidating situation because of your faith? And people want to silence you and don't want you to live for Christ publicly. Maybe in your workplace or in your school or in your family or somewhere in your sphere of influence. What do you do when people are trying to come against you in your faith? How should you respond? Number one, fight battles on your knees. Fight battles on your knees. Over in Ephesians chapter 6, as we see the passage on the armor of God that we're to wear Uh, spiritually, when we're engaged in spiritual warfare, it mentions at the end of that text that we're to wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and we're to pray in the Spirit. Pray at all times in the Spirit, because prayer is a weapon. Prayer is a weapon. And the way that you and I need to face what's happening in our culture is through prayer. We need to pray like we've never prayed before. A movie was released this weekend, War Room. And how many have seen War Room already? If you haven't seen it, I want to encourage you to go see it. I, I was able to see an advanced showing about a month ago, and, and along with our staff and some others. And uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a really powerful call, a clarion call to prayer. It's an engaging story, but it's a challenge to really be a person of prayer. And one of the main characters in this movie, she has a prayer closet and she calls it her war room. I love that because that lady understands, as we should understand, that prayer is warfare. The way we deal with intimidation, the way we deal with persecution, the way we deal with ungodly tyrants is on our knees. Acts 12, they were earnest in prayer. And oh, how we need to pray. There's an old saying that says, prayer is not part of our work, prayer is our work. We need to pray. Fight battles on our knees. So when you find yourself in a a situation that's intimidating because of your faith, go to your war room. Amen? Pray. Secondly, Don't back away from truth. Don't back away from truth. Why? Because over in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, Jesus said that when you know the truth, the truth will what? Set you free, right? So listen, if we stop sharing truth, if we stop standing for truth, if we back away from truth... How are people who are far from God, lost and in their sins, going to be set free? The only way they can be set free is if they hear the truth of the gospel from people that know Jesus. So we dare not back away from truth. We are doing our culture a great disservice 
if we stop standing for the, the principles and precepts and doctrines of the Word of God, if we stop sharing that good news that Jesus saves sinners, we will contribute to the decline of our culture. And so we've got to be people that stand for the truth. And I want you to understand the end game of activists in our culture. Not only do activists want to do what they want to do, anything they want to do, but they also want to stop you and me from saying it's wrong. That's the end game. Understand that's where we're headed. That if we say that certain things are right or wrong, if we stand for the truth of the Bible, there is going to be a price to pay. But listen to me. If we back away from the truth, no one's going to be set free. We'll just be on the sidelines watching our culture disintegrate when God has called us to stand for what's right, to share good news with the lost and dying. Amen? Don't back away from the truth. You know, there's a way to avoid hardship. Did you know that? We can be like water. You know, water always takes the path of least resistance, doesn't it? And we as believers can say, okay, we'll just not make a big deal or big fuss. We'll just meet our little religious gatherings and have our worship services. And, and in these four walls, we'll talk about certain things. But, but outside of the four walls, we'll just kind of be quiet. We'll keep our faith a private matter. We'll take the path of least resistance. You can do that and avoid hardship. But you will not be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot back away from the truth. Third. When you find yourself in intimidating circumstances, know that God sees what you're going through and cares. Notice in Acts 12, something phenomenal happens. It says in verse 6, Now when Herod was about to bring him out, he was about to bring Peter out to be executed. When he was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was what? Wringing his hands, worried? No, Peter is sleeping. And he's sleeping so hard that the angel has to whack him to wake him up. Now how in the world could Peter be in prison, nailed between two soldiers, knowing he's about to be executed and sleep? Because Peter knew God saw everything. Peter knew God was watching over him and that God cared about his plight. Over in Acts 16, we'll get there down the road, but in Acts 16, we see Paul and Silas there in prison, and at the midnight hour, the Bible says, they are singing hymns. They're in prison, and they're singing praise songs. Why? Because they knew God cared for them and was watching over them. I want you to understand that no matter how difficult it gets to follow Christ, God is watching. God cares. God knows what's going on. Early on, when I really began to grow in my faith, someone gave me a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. And it's an older book, and it, and it details through church history different Christians who were martyred for their faith. And the thing that really struck me when I read that book was not just the fact that people were being killed for preaching Christ. What struck me is how the people who were being killed faced their death. Dignity. Calm. Resolve. Even with their dying breath, pointing people to Jesus Christ. How could people experience martyrdom? 
being burned at the stake and all these other awful things. How could they experience that and maintain such calm? Because they knew God was watching over them. So understand, when you're going through something hard, God sees what you're going through and He cares. Next, when you find yourself in intimidating circumstances, ask God to move in mighty ways while being willing to lay down your life for His glory. Ask God for deliverance. And understand that God's deliverance may be temporal, it may be ultimate, but God always delivers. So pray and ask God to move, but, but, but understand that your life is in His hands. And you want to serve Him and follow Jesus no matter what it means. You want your life to be used for His glory. So whatever God wants to do with your life, let Him do it. Perhaps you've heard the story of Jim Elliott. He and four other young men and their families went to Ecuador. And in the jungles of Ecuador, they engaged this unreached people group. And the unreached people group turned on Jim and his four colleagues and they were killed. This, this tribe of people in the jungle killed them. Br- brutal, brutal story. But it's, an, it's an, a victorious story because Elizabeth Elliot, Jim's wife, and, and the others, they go back to this tribe. And now today that tribe's a Christian tribe because the families of, of the slain men went back with the good news. It's an amazing story. But what would lead a young man, gifted young man like Jim Elliot, to leave... North America, go down to the jungles, land is playing on a sandbar in the middle of the river, and walk up to these folks who are, by all accounts, prehistoric tribe, and try to share the gospel with them, even though he knew he was in a dangerous situation. Well, maybe we can get a glimpse by one of his quotes. One of Jimmy Elliott's famous quotes is this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let me say it again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. In other words, he's saying he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep his life. We can't control the number of our days. Our life is in his hands. So lay down your life for the glory of God so you can gain what you cannot lose, which is eternal reward. Jim Elliot's saying, Lord, it's not my life, it's your life. And if you want me to go to the jungles of Ecuador and preach the gospel in the midst of great danger, I'll go because it's not my life. And I understand that even if my life is taken from me, I'll gain an eternal reward that can never be taken from me. That's the kind of resolve we need. As we send people out, around North America, as we send people out to the ends of the earth on short-term trips, we go to some very dangerous areas. we got to have that same resolve. God, protect us. Watch over us. Deliver us. But God, my life is in your hands. Do with it what you want to do. That's the kind of resolve we need, which leads me to the last thing. When you find yourself in intimidating circumstances, maintain steadfast confidence that Jesus wins and will receive all glory. When the dust of human history settles, every knee, Herod, Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, Mao Zedong, every knee will bow. And every tongue, even those that spoke the most ungodly things in this world, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
that day is coming. So we know that no matter what happens, no matter what we face, what we encounter, intimidation, persecution, hardship, whatever, if they want to take away our tax-exempt status or, or take away our charitable giving deductions or whatever, if it affects us financially, physically, whatever, if we lose our job, if they fuss at us at school, whatever, whatever, we know that when it's all said and done, Jesus wins. And we want to be on the winning team. I'll close with this, this story. I think I've shared this before, but it really drives home this point. Years ago, Claire and I were in school. I was in seminary. She was in pharmacy school. And we were babysitting for family. This husband and wife wanted to go out for an event. And so we were keeping uh, a couple of their kids. And, and I'll never forget it because on that day we were babysitting. Uh, the Florida-Florida State football game was on. I'm a big Florida State Seminole football fan. Go Knowles. And, and so, of course, I wanted to watch the game. So really what was happening is I was watching the game. Claire was babysitting, just to be honest. And, and I'll never forget it because I was watching that game, and the, the, the man uh, that we were babysitting for, he was a big Florida Gator fan. So he was interested in the game as well. So he was, and some of you young people will understand this, he was recording it on his VCR. If you don't get that, I'll talk to you later about it, all right? He was recording the game on his VCR, and, and, and so he got back from the, he and his wife returned from the event, and he came in, went immediately to VCR, rewound it so he could watch the game, right? So we're there for a few minutes after they returned, just kind of talking and um, you know, just sharing with them a little bit, and, and this man starts watching the game, and I'm watching the game with him. Now, he's on the edge of his seat, he doesn't know what's going to happen. Every play's like, ooh, you know, he's really into the game. I'm relaxed, <laughs> calm, cool, because I knew Florida State won the game. And no matter what happened, it didn't, it didn't, didn't rattle me. I was, it was the most fun I've ever had watching a football game. <laughs> you know why? I knew how it turned out. I knew we win. Listen to me. No matter how difficult it gets following Christ in our culture. Understand that if you are following Christ, you are on the winning team. Maintain that confidence and keep on following Jesus. Here's what I want you to walk away with. Here's what I want you to walk away with. The, the point of, of, of this entire message, we need not fear forces arrayed against Jesus and his church because the gospel will ultimately triumph. Don't fear. Keep on living courageously, boldly for the glory of God and the sake of the gospel.